Hello and welcome to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and I'm so excited to kick off season two of the podcast. At Principal, we get it. You have big plans for your money, but sometimes life has something else in mind. There are twists and turns you never see coming. Twists like job transfers and turns like new family members. Life doesn't always go according to plan. We can help you plan for that. Principal. Investments. Retirement. Insurance. Start today at Principal.com. Principal National Life and Principal Life Insurance Companies, Principal Global Investors, Principal Securities, Inc. Member SIPC. Member Companies of Principal, Des Moines, Iowa. Last year, we spoke with a series of financial experts covering real estate, personal finance, investing, and other topics. I invite you to check out those episodes on Wealth of Knowledge wherever you listen to podcasts. And for the start of Season 2, we have a fantastic guest for you. Mark Randolph is an entrepreneur, advisor, investor, and environmental advocate. He has founded or co-founded numerous successful startups. Most recently, he co-founded analytics software company Looker Data Sciences, where he now serves as director. But he is most well-known for being the co-founder and first CEO of Netflix. He recently published a book about his time at Netflix called That Will Never Work. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks, Antonio. A pleasure to be with you. So the full title of the book is That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. And we're going to spend the majority of our time really diving into that subtitle to hear your story and what other entrepreneurs can learn from it. So let's start with the birth of the idea for Netflix. In the first few pages, you write, epiphanies are rare. And when they appear in origin stories, they're often oversimplified or just plain false. Distrust epiphanies. Your and co-founder Reed Hastings' idea for Netflix developed over a longer period of time? Yeah, you know, we all kind of want that epiphany story. It's somehow neat and tidy to imagine, you know, Newton under the apple tree or Archimedes in his bathtub or even the two guys with the blow-up air mattress, you know. But it doesn't work like that. Um, and what I wanted to do in That'll Never Work is kind of tell this untold story of Netflix and that at the beginning it could have been almost anything. Because back when we, Reed and I, Reed Hastings, my co-founder and I, were brainstorming ideas, yeah, we thought about video rental by mail, but we also thought about crazy things like personalized shampoo or custom baseball bats and these crazy ideas. And in fact, the idea that we came up with for video rental by mail at first seemed amazing because there's this $8 billion category. Um, the entrenched competitor um, left a lot to be desired in the customer experience category. Um, so it sounded great, but back then it was all um, VHS, those big cassettes. So even that idea was a bad one and it got abandoned. And so over a period of months, you know, we kept going with ideas until we heard about that new thing called the DVD, and that really is what unlocked the possibility of um, doing video rental by mail. So I want to set a timeline for your work at Netflix. You start the brainstorming for the idea in spring of 1997. By the fall of 1997, you have your seed money, the $1.9 million from co-founder Reed Hastings, and then by April 1998, Netflix is launched. So I have a few questions from this. Let's start with this one. Uh, how on earth were you able to build a brand new product in six months? <laughs> well, I'm not sure whether you're, uh, how did you ever comment on how long it took? Like, how could you ever have spent six months? We could do that in an afternoon for probably a nickel or free. And it's true. Uh, but back then, this was 1998. This is 21 years ago. And 
certainly the technology was not in the same place it is today. That if you wanted to build a website, you couldn't just go and download Squarespace or something. You had to build it yourself, every line of code. You wanted to take credit cards, you had to write your own credit card processing um, software. You wanted to do security, you wanted to do redundancy, you wanted to do all those things, you had to do them yourself. And so it did. It took us six months, it took us a million dollars, a dozen people to roll out a pretty basic e-commerce uh, website. It, it wasn't easy. In fact, on that day one, which was April 14th of 1998, the big question wasn't what's going to happen with Blockbuster or what's going to happen with proprietary content or any of those things. It was, is this website going to work? So now I've, I've named Reed a few times, uh, who, by the way, is still at Netflix as CEO. So I'm, I'm curious to know your relationship with him in Netflix's early days. So that goes back probably a year prior. Uh, and two friends and I had founded a really geeky startup doing quality assurance software. Uh, so that's the software that people who are finding bugs in software would use. Um, and the kind of, kind of company that no one knows what the hell you're talking about. My mother had no idea what I was doing. But um, Reed Hastings knew what we were doing. And his company, which was called Pure Atria, acquired our company. And the other eight people in the company all ended up being assigned to the basement to form a business unit. Uh, but I was, the, I was the marketing kind of business person. And so they pulled me upstairs to run marketing for Reed's company. So I got to work with him professionally, but the real break was that Reed and I both lived in the same town. We both lived in Santa Cruz, California. And we ended up commuting together. And it was a 45 to an hour minute drive each way. And so during that period, which only lasted about six months, um, we got to know each other pretty well. And what really formed Netflix is that Reed's company, Pure Atria, was in itself acquired. Um, and probably the biggest break out of that was that Reed and I both got fired. But, you know, not, not fired in that awful way, um, but fired in the golden handcuffs way, where in an acquisition they tell you you've got to stick around in case they have questions and they're going to pay you and your stock's going to vest and you can stay in your office, but you have nothing to do. And so after a few weeks of Reed and I going and playing golf together and going off scuba diving during when the rest of the company was on the retreat actually doing business, um, I said, I'm going to start another company because I had done five companies prior to coming into um, Netflix. And Reed, um, at that time, didn't want to do another company. He wanted to change the world, um, change education specifically. So he was going to go back to Stanford and get his um, a graduate degree in education, but wanted to keep his hand in. So we hatched the plan that we'd come up with an idea, uh, he would be the angel, and then I would start and run uh, the company. So Reed and I had a year or so um, of time together. But it was one of those things where the minute I met Reed, I kind of knew this was a kindred spirit, that he was a yin to my yang. You know, that he had this approach so different than mine, but both of us shared this common cultural um, attitude, which was, and. You know, now it's called radical honesty. I'm not sure what I would have called it then. But no time wasted on niceties. And no coloring the truth to avoid sparing someone's feelings. Um, vigorous debate, followed by complete understanding of which was the obviously right answer. And so he, in many ways, he was a fantastic person to have as a business partner. 
in a very oversimplified way, I read your process for starting Netflix as first defining the product, which ended up being movies, sorting out the delivery of said product, which originally was DVD by envelope, then the cost, and then scale. Uh, you write in the book, you want something where the effort it takes to sell a dozen is identical to the effort it takes to sell just one. What else would you add to that that was integral to figuring out early on? Yeah, so you want, you want the ability to, you want leverage, uh, you want scale. Um, the other things you're looking at is you want a big enough category um, that if you're successful, you actually have some room to run. And as I mentioned earlier, you want a disruptable environment. And you want, what we saw in video rental was really attractive in that it was an, almost entirely locked up by one player. And even better, that one player was locked into a way of doing business. I mean, they had 9,000 leases, 9,000 sets of employees, 9,000 local neighborhood catchment areas. And when we looked at this, especially when we realized that DVD was going to be the key to unlocking the video by mail, we recognized that each individual blockbuster, if they were lucky, had one DVD owner in their neighborhood and that it would be a long time before they had any kind of economic incentive to carry DVDs. So looking at this, we saw this opportunity that would leave the things wide open for us for a long time. And the reason it's important, and the reason I emphasize that, is that a startup is um, prone to disasters. I mean, nature abhors a startup. It's always throwing things at you. You are going to stumble, and you're going to stumble a hundred times before you finally get it right. And you need to be in a category which will allow you to do that. You can get it wrong over and over and over again, but people are so desperate for what you're doing, they'll overlook all of that. And I think we ended up choosing right. You make several mentions throughout the book of how spending time in wildlife has so many direct parallels to work in startups, specifically your time with the National Outdoor Leadership School. Uh, can you talk about uh, how your time with the school and just being an outdoorsman has benefited you professionally? Well, certainly. And at first, I mean, a little bit about Knowles or the National Outdoor Leadership School. You know, it's a, pro, it's a school that has, uh, operates all over the world that takes people of all ages out into the wilderness to give them the, the skills, but also leadership. And it just turns out that the wilderness is an amazing place to learn leadership. Because everything is uncertain. When you start out, you have a rough idea where you're going, but you're prone to change where you want to end up. You don't know how you're going to get there. You have no idea what you're going to encounter on the way. Your group has to be assessed for its individual strengths and weaknesses. You have to reassess that as you go. You have to communicate to your group with clarity and confidence things about which you may not in fact be clear or confident. Um, and I went originally as a student when I was only 14 years old and almost immediately on day two they say okay Mark you're leader of the day and you have four other students you're leading that followed at a safe uh, respectful distance by the course leader and you're in charge you decide how fast you go you decide when you stop how long the breaks are do I take the longer route which is on the flatter terrain or do I go the short route which is up and over the ridge and wow, you learn almost immediately that each of your decisions has real consequences. That in fact, the way you communicate with your group, do you assess their opinion or do you just tell them? You find out very quickly what good leadership and bad leadership is. You learn about situational awareness. 
And I'm hammering on all this because I did that when I was 14. I was a student again at 15 and 16. I came back to work for the school all through college. And so by the time it came for me to be in real business where I did have to assess the strength of my group, where the goals were uncertain, where the path to get there was prone to change, I'd already been doing that for 10 years. Um, and I find it was a phenomenal opportunity which most people never get. They never get a chance to make real decisions with real consequences and see the consequences of the decisions almost immediately thereafter. I know one of the stories from the book that I found humorous but also fascinating was about uh, where they wanted you to experience having to fend for yourself with nothing, basically, with no food, no money, no shelter, and you ended up having to basically beg for money, but that actually taught you about meeting with venture capitalists much later. Can you talk about that uh, that day a little bit? I'm sure you remember it well. Yeah, sure. The, and this was a, another wilderness school that I worked for. This one was more focused on disadvantaged youth and who were taking from largely inner city environments and bringing to the wilderness where they were completely disoriented. So the training was, wouldn't it be interesting to take us, who were totally comfortable in the woods, and make us equally disoriented? And the way they did that was dropping me off in downtown Hartford with no wallet, no watch, no money, no ID, um, and nowhere to stay, and saying, we'll see you in three days. And much hilarity ensued. <laughs> but you're right. You get to a point where you go, there's an imperative here. I'm hungry. And at first, I was doing that, what I call the seagull, where you kind of hover and wait for someone to get up from their plate, and you swoop in and grab the french fries. And then I was going, why don't I just cut out the middleman? I'm going to get some money myself and buy my own food. And I had a panhandle. And it's the naked ask. It is, I mean, you put your hands out and goes, I want money, and I have nothing for you. Um, but what was fantastic was, first of all, how unbelievably hard it is to do that, to walk up to stranger and say, can I have some money? And it sounds easy, really, really hard. But by doing it over and over and over, I probably did a hundred asks or more in that day, you internalize what works. And what, you, what I eventually learned, I'm not sure it one size fits all, is that honesty and sincerity um, work the best. Just telling someone, I'm hungry. And so years later, when I had to do essentially something pretty close, which was ask for money for essentially nothing, uh, with a VC, trying to sell this idea of a company that did video by mail when there's a blockbuster on every corner, when they're going to be streaming it in a matter of weeks. I was already uh, an old hand at uh, asking for money. So turning back to Netflix, I want to make sure that I ask about Mitch Lowe. He's such a fascinating person in this story. You. You write in the book that in the pre-launch days of Netflix, rather than having an algorithm figuring out which movies to carry, how many copies, you just had Mitch Lowe uh, using his expansive knowledge of movies in the industry to make decisions on supply, which today seems crazy. Uh, can you talk uh, about Mitch's contributions in those early days? Well, they really are immeasurable because you have to understand that Reed Hastings and I had the hubris to start a company to do video rental by mail when between the two of us, we had exactly zero days experience in the video industry. And the team that I brought in, my early team of a dozen people to launch this company, amongst them, we had a cumulative experience of zero minutes 
experience in the video industry. And so it occurred to me that it might be helpful if I actually had someone who actually knew what they were doing. Um, and I went to the Video Software Dealers Association, which is the trade show for the video business. And I was back in the cheap seats area. Back, they would call it the pipe and drape. And anyone who's been to a conference knows what that looks like. Because I was looking at the guys who did the software for video stores. And I bumped into this non-assuming, nondescript guy, kind of casual. And we had this nice chat. And I was trying to pretend that I knew what I was talking about. But he could see through me. And as I was walking away, he grabbed me and goes, what are you, what are you really up to? And I said, what a nice guy. He knows a lot about video. But it turns out that Mitch, who that was, uh, was actually the chairman of the VSDA. So, whoa, he knows everybody. But over the next bunch of months, I said, I'm going to get that guy to work for me. And it took me about four months to convince him. But the thing is, he was one of those guys, like a Quentin Tarantino, who had spent his entire life behind the counter of his family's chain of video stores. He had seen everyone come in with the same glazed expression how do I find something to watch? And he had learned over the years, what were the two or three questions you could ask to help you hone in on what they should watch? And he came back and taught us, not just about how important matching someone up with entertainment they're going to like is, but how to do it, as well as how the business model would work. Like when I came to Mitch and goes, could we try this? He goes, nah, back in 1995 they tried that, and here's what happened. How about this? Oh, back in 1992, Times Warner... Like a Wikipedia page of the history of the movie industry. Absolutely. Unbelievably valuable. And Mitch is still a great friend of mine. And, you know, um, there's a great symmetry. He was the first person to introduce me. But then actually, at the very end of my time at Netflix, Mitch and I went out and did my last project at uh, um, Netflix, which was doing research into a kiosk to dispense rental movies. And we actually spent four months in Las Vegas testing that concept, which Netflix ultimately decided not to do. And Mitch said, ah, oh, the hell with that. And he went off and founded another little video company called Redbox. And people have probably, they may have heard of <laughs> may have heard of that too. So you talked about uh, the team earlier. I want to discuss hiring. You mentioned in the book the importance of hiring innovators and that real innovation comes not from top-down pronouncements, but from people who can see a task and figure out a solution on their own. Can you give another example of when that played out at, at Netflix? See, I, I genuinely believe that everyone is inherently creative. If you can free from them all of either the assumptions they're placed, that, are, that they think are, are there, or even worse, the constrictions that are specifically placed on them. Um, and one of the things we did at the very beginning is the thing that every startup does is there are no restrictions. There are no rules. So if you think about doing video rental by mail never done before, so there's no one telling you, oh, no, no, you do it this way. But the real fundamental thing that supports innovation and makes that happen is you have no choice. You have a thousand things to do and you could use a hundred people to do it and you have ten. So there's not time to say, Antonio, what I want you to do is do this and this, and if this happens, do that, and I want a status report every Friday, and we'll meet, and we'll call, uh, the heck with that. You go, all right, in two months, here's where we have to be, and here's what you need to get done. Figure it out, and I'm not gonna check in with you. I'm gonna count on you that in two months, you're gonna show up with all that stuff done, no matter what you encountered on the way, and how to figure out on your own how to handle it. And that's just the nature of a startup is that everyone is freed up to figure it out. You have this freedom, but also this responsibility to get there. 
And that is found in almost every startup. What's unusual is that it's easy when it's seven. It's hard when it's 70. It's really hard at 700, and it's almost never heard of at 7,000, which is where Netflix is today. So the unique thing about a company like Netflix is the fact that it's managed to preserve that startup creativity as it scales. When people think of the startups that become giants, the Amazons, the Netflixes, uh, I think a lot of times they assume that every decision had to go perfectly in order for them to find such uh, success, but it's much the opposite. Uh, can you talk about some of the mistakes in the early days of Netflix, maybe some things you would have done differently? Well, you know, hindsight is a, is a wonderful thing. And if I had been able to know in advance, I would have skipped the first year and a half. And that very first thing I would have tried is the thing that actually worked, or even better. You know, you can't do it that way. Part of a startup is you can't see the future, and you have to stumble along. So the trick is not avoiding errors. It's figuring out a way to make as many errors as you possibly can. And the difference is, at the beginning, we were overly cautious, and we'd have these ideas, and we had no idea if they'd work or not, and we'd build this perfect test, which took a month to do, and you'd waste a month, because of course it wouldn't work. And over time, we realized that the quality of the test was irrelevant. The trick was, do the crappiest thing you could think of. The down and dirty and ugly and broken links and the wrong image and misspellings because it didn't make a difference. If you found something that worked, it immediately shone through. And so there, what, what mistakes did we make? A thousand. But what we did right is figured out a way to make lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of mistakes so that we could eventually stumble into the ones that worked. And it took a year and a half, a year and a half of failing at rental by mail before I did something I should have tried at the beginning, which was subscription. I mean, you know, Netflix was my sixth startup, and two of them were magazines. And one, I was in charge of circulation. I knew subscription business. And, you know, that was, for those who couldn't see, that was a forehead slap. You know, I wish I had tried that one earlier. We'll add a, add a sound effect <laughs> later to make it more pronounced. <laughs> uh, I also want to make sure I bring up work-life balance for a second, just because we cover that a lot at U.S. News in our careers space, and you absolutely made that a priority when starting out in, in 1997, even though that was different from how a lot of other startups operated then and, and now. So why did you push work-life balance even through challenging times at the company? So um, I'm going to focus on that word push, uh, because I never pushed it. But that's a misleading thing to say. Uh, and that you have to talk about culture for a second. And my fundamental premise is that culture is not what you say, and it's not what you write, and it's not what you put in a culture deck, and it's not what you carve in the cornerstone of your building. It's what you do. And it's not what you do in an aspirational way. It's what you do in an organic way. Culture springs from how the founders act. And people model off of that. So long before Netflix, I had kind of made this decision and it was not a business plan decision. It was just this fundamental, strong belief of mine that I wanted to keep my relationship strong. And I didn't want to be someone who was on their sixth startup and their sixth wife. You know, my wife's my best friend, and I wanted to spend time with my best friend. And so well earlier, we had developed this principle that every Tuesday, rain or shine, no matter what happens, 5 o'clock p.m., I'm out the door, and we have a date night. And it, at first, you have to fight 
pretty hard to keep that. You know, big crisis, better be done by five. I have to talk, Mark, on the way to the car. And the wonderful thing that happens is after six or seven weeks of that, people realize that Mark is not kidding and they stop asking. And then here comes the cultural part. You're walking the walk. You're, you're really demonstrating. You're not just saying, I like work-life balance and then you're being a workaholic. They see you walking out the door every day at five and the wonderful thing happens. They begin going, I can go have a date night with my significant other. Um, and you've really showed that it's important. I t when I took vacations, I'd be off the grid because I'm an outdoorsy guy. There's no option. It's literally and figuratively. Absolutely <laughs> right. I mean, you're a place where you don't have the choice to check your email. And when people see that the world does not um, explode and that when you tell someone if something comes up, Mitch will handle it. That I never come back from vacation and pull Mitch in behind closed doors and yell at him for something he did. It's, and it, that's, how, that's how you make it real to say work-life balance is important. You have to model it but not model it in an aspirational way. It has to be genuine. Let's go over the name of Netflix here. Uh, I know in the book you list the ideas for the name. I won't say all of them, but uh, take one, scene two, fast forward, cinema center. I don't mind that one. Uh, and I especially like the idea of giving a new company an initial terrible name as a placeholder that you know you'll have to change. How did you come up with the, the placeholder name and then how did you settle on Netflix? The placeholder name is important because obviously on day one you've got to write checks to people. You need to get assigned a lease. You need a, you need to have emails. So you need a name. And my uh, one of my friends and one of the first investors in Netflix and a board member was a guy named Steve Kahn, and he gave me the advice that when you pick your beta name, as it's called, um, pick the worst name you can think of, because when it gets down to it and you're struggling to find a real name for the company, you're going to want to take this beta name you're now familiar with and just, ah, let's use that. Um, and our beta name was Kibble, like the dog food. Um, and there was two reasons why we picked Kibble.com uh, as our first name. And number one is I happen to own it, which uh, was helpful. <laughs> <it's> helpful. <laughs> but the reason I owned it is because one of my long time mottos, and I, I didn't coin the phrase, but it's always resonated with me, was that um, doesn't count unless the dogs eat the dog food. Meaning your Alpo advertisement can be unbelievable um, and maybe they'll buy it by the case because of your advertisement, but it doesn't make a difference if the product's crappy. The dogs will eat the dog food. And I wanted to remind us that fundamentally that's what was important. And Steve was right. You know, six months later when we came time to pick that name, Everything good was taken, or there was a domain name. Someone else had the domain name, or someone else had a trademark, or it meant something obscene in Lithuanian, or something like that. And we all sat down one day and goes, uh, "What do we pick?" And we had a list of names. You know, I take one, scene two, uh, replay, Cinema Center, and Netflix. And people had a problem with Netflix, and specifically, they didn't like the flicks part because back then, this is in the late 90s, you know, there was porno was sometimes called a skin flick or skin flicks. And of course there was that X, you know, was, but it sounded a little porny, but we, we went with it. Yes. And you know, some, it, it's not bad. It's kind of grown on me. And I'm, I'm not, you know, 
it's kind of hard to imagine people. Let's go cinema center and chill. You know, it doesn't quite have the same uh, have the same. Ring. I was I was wondering if that was going to come ring up. to it. <laughs> I didn't put it in any other questions. Oh, so you you launch officially in April of 1998, and when that at that time, you guys are grabbing and packing the DVDs by hand. You're composing confirmation emails to the customers by hand. How is this a lesson for startups that eventually you need to let go and put your idea out there, even if it's not maybe 100 percent? wrapped up yeah the, i mean the, the lesson there is that the more time you spend wrapping things up as you put it which is a good word for it the more time you're wasting because you're wrapping up things you don't really understand and it may end up being useless that what you think is going to happen i promise is not what's going to happen the things that are important i guarantee are not what's going to ultimately be important the thing the customers like is not what you think they're going to like every idea is a bad one and your, your goal as an entrepreneur, as a person at any level of business, is to find out as quickly as you can why your idea is a bad one so you can begin to, the process of modifying it to eventually find the good one. And Netflix took six months to start, and I wish we had done it in three. Uh, I didn't know as much then as I know now. Um, I would have cut even more corners. I would have, uh, you know, our website crashed, as you read, in the first 15 minutes. I would have been fine if it crashed in the first five minutes. Um, I would have learned more quickly. And the lesson, of course, is what I've learned is the most important thing is to figure out how to collide your idea with reality as quickly as you can, as cheaply, the coarsest possible way, because the learning takes place not in writing the business plan or putting the pitch deck. The learning takes place when you collide the idea with a customer. Um, and we did that at Netflix continually and eventually got even better at, at throwing out even bigger bigger piles of garbage because if it was a good idea, they would see it and then you knew what to fix. How many times did the site crash on launch day? Uh, probably 60. I mean, uh, I don't know, <laughs> 10 hours, 11 hours and three or four, every 15 minutes. I mean, it was frustrating. We, It was foolish because um, we go, okay, we need a server. And one of our employees, a guy named Corey Bridges, who had worked at Netscape, goes, you're crazy. You're, you're, you should, listen, you should probably be a little bit redundant. Maybe you should get six servers. I'm going, six? I go, we're going to get 10 people. All right, we'll get two. And don't forget, back then, you, this is not in the cloud. You literally had to buy a machine, configure it, put it in the rack. And you had to buy a switch, which could handle a certain number. I didn't want to buy a switch which could handle eight. So I go, okay, we'll spring for the one we can handle two. Um, and launched with two, and that was a big mistake. And so what was happening is we were we drove back to Fry's Electronics, which is the big superstar closest to us, you know, three times that day. You know, after a while the guys who were working in the computer department would see us coming and they begin going to the back and pulling out the uh, you know the memory and the new servers and eventually we had ten machines uh, and even that wasn't enough to keep us from crashing. Uh, it was a, a problem, but I guess a good a it, good problem. To it was an astounding problem. You know, we ended that first day, and these numbers are going to sound trite with about 150 orders, but but that was like my whole first month forecast. Right. So, uh, good problem to have, but uh, kind of a scary one. So then, early on, six weeks in, your purchase revenue was significantly higher than the rental revenue. First of all, I didn't even remember Netflix selling DVDs. But for a lot of young businesses, if something similar happened, I think a lot 
may take the approach of, well, let's be a DVD selling site then. But you didn't want to do that. So when do you think it's smart to pivot to what's selling versus convincing your customers to pay attention to your ideal number one product? It's usually pretty obvious, at least to the people whose job it is in a company to look forward. And we were surprised that 90 some odd plus percent of our revenue is now coming from selling DVDs. Because it turned out that the idea that everyone said would never work, you know, that my wife said that'll never work, didn't work. I mean, nobody wanted to rent from us. And if they rented once, they wouldn't rent again. And because we were the only place in the country you could really buy DVDs, that was working. But it didn't take a genius to go, this is not a long-term viable business. Or if it is, this is going to be a hard row to hoe. You know, Amazon was already in business and they were a couple years old. They were selling books only, if you can imagine a time like that. Um, but we knew Jeff Bezos had already had his IPO. He was already um, making noise about being the everything store. And so we were, knew the next target was video. And it was a commodity business. So. It was paying all the bills, but we were pretty sure this was not the business that we could compete adequately in. And rental, we still believed in. We still saw this $8 billion market that was so deeply flawed that we had to figure out a way. But here's the key. It's not that we saw one that was the future and one that was the past. And we could have run them simultaneously. The realization was that running one was getting in the way of being successful in the other. And that is the key. It's not about saying, immediately abandon the past. What it's about is abandoning all components of the past that are impeding your ability to focus on the future. That's what is the lesson. And for example, selling and running at the same time was really complicated for consumers. To start with, we were trying to get a brand name out there and having to say, here's what we do. Oh, we sell. Oh, and we rent. And then some video, some titles, oh, oh, that one you can only buy, or that one you can only rent. And then think about designing your order processing and your shipping and fulfillment and your reporting. If we were going to get rental right, everything we were doing to remain compatible with the selling part was getting in the way. So that was what forced the hand, was that if we were going to be successful in rental, we had to go all in. And at point, and it was not too far in, three or four months, where we pulled the plug and then in a single day walked away from 90 plus percent of our revenue. So I was going to bring that up. It's, it's, easy, it's easier, I should say, when you have all these reasons for making a change. It's a lot harder when the number is not 97% of your revenue. So even with all the knowledge that you had and that you needed to change, how tough was it to, to drop such a significant percentage of your revenue to make this decision? You know, it, it definitely focuses you when, <laughs> when you do this, but it's terrifying because you're wondering about your responsibility. Um, you go, I'm willing to go all in on this and walk away from our only visible means of support, but what obligation do I have to my investors? What obligation do I have to the employees? I mean, I remember you know, standing there in the evening and looking out at the parking lot and seeing all the cars that were still there with people all working late and going, I'm responsible for the car payments on those cars and those people's mortgages. Can I take this risk? But fundamentally, it's what an entrepreneur has to do is recognize the risk I'm taking is to be successful in the future. 
Um, and my job is, just as it was when I was 14, is to communicate with confidence and clarity, there's where we're going and here's why, and lead us off into something uh, unknown. But you're right. Um, but Netflix has made that decision multiple times in its past, where it's willing to not just then walk away from selling DVDs to focus on renting, but essentially walking away from renting DVDs to focus on streaming. And the point is, it's not walking away that bad. It's that when you're making a decision, you're 100% focused on the new business. And you're not going to do anything to maintain reverse compatibility if it slows you down on the current business. And I, I'll add, in my opinion, it's the Achilles heel for every large established business. That's what leads to disruption. It is not transitions in technology. It's not young startups coming after you. It's those companies' fear or inability or unwillingness to weaken their established businesses in order to go all in on what they know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is the future. In the summer of 1998, you had, uh, I, I put this with capital letters, the Amazon meeting. Uh, with Jeff Bezos about a potential acquisition. Can you talk about that, that meeting and, and where it pushed Netflix? So it happened at an opportune time, which is it happened just as about, about as we were about to go out for our first real round of financing. We called it the Series B, but today would be the A because the first round would be considered the seed. But uh, we knew that Amazon was considering going into video. And so when we got a call from uh, Jeff Bezos' CFO saying, Jeff, would love to have a chat with you up in Seattle, we were 99% sure we knew where this was going. And it was a fantastic trip uh, because this was Amazon. This was the pioneer in e-commerce. And of course, we, we, were, we got there and we're going, Is, could this possibly be the pioneer of e-commerce? This looks like a dump. This makes our offices, which we're already in the dump with a capital D uh, category, look palatial. Um, people were squeezed in, all the desks were made of old doors, pizza boxes everywhere. Um, but we got down to the meeting and Jeff was sounding us out and it was true, it was about a possible acquisition. And um, we got a sense, it wasn't explicit, there was never a real offer made, but they were sounding us out. They would probably be, as they called it, in the low eight figures, which, you know, if you call it even low eight figures, it's mean it's barely eight figures. So we figured it was going to be in the 10 to $20 million range, so maybe $15 million. And then as Reed and I were flying home, it made this Amazon meeting into somewhat of a commitment ceremony because usually you're burning your boats, as they say. And we realized that now if we wanted out, there was a way out. That At that time, I owned about 30% of the company, so... $5 million for a less than a year's work would have been a pretty nice outcome. But I think Reed and I both decided in the course of that plane flight home that we weren't ready to turn it in. You know, and I use the analogy in, in the book, you know, that we had just rebuilt the car and got the engine to finally turn over, and we weren't quite willing to give someone else the keys to uh, take it for a spin. A turning point for you and for Netflix uh, was when Reed took over from you as CEO and you moved to president and he took a, a much more hands-on approach with the company. How was that process considering the two of you were partners but also I would assume had, had a friendship 
and how tough was it for you to let go of something that you had worked on previously in every single detail? Yeah, I guess uh, the business term for that is it sucks. Um, I, I want to be the first person to use the term on the podcast, or if I'm not, sure. I'm good. Sure. I think so. I think you are. <laughs> uh, but it's all about business, so you know, got to learn these things. But anyway, it, it was a really bad moment in a way. Because ha- you know, I was sitting in my office at, um, I guess, 7 o'clock at night or so, and then the door cracks open and Reed pops his head in and then delivers those, um, you know, the, we've got to talk words. Um, and then worse, kind of begins walking me through in a PowerPoint all the, uh, the failures he was seeing in my leadership. I go, Reed, I am not going to uh, sit here and let you pitch me on why, why I suck. Um, he goes, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. And, and his message was that not that he thought I needed to go. He wasn't staging a coup. He was really saying that the company is stronger if we run it together. You know, at the time, he had been the original investor and he was the chairman of the board, but he was not day-to-day at the company. And he was recognizing that if we really were going to surmount the challenges ahead of us, it would be much more likely if both of us ran the company together. That he come in as CEO and that I step over to president. Um, and as you said, that was really hard because I had this dream of running this company and seeing it successful. Um, and I realize now that that dream wasn't just my dream, that all the investors wanted to see it successful. It was their dream. And the employees who were all coming in late and staying on weekends and missing uh, family things, it was their dream. And I had to separate mine. I had to go, which is more important? And I sat there in the dark in my office and then eventually went home and sat on the porch with my wife um, and ultimately realized that Reed was right, that we'd always been honest with each other. He didn't have an ax to grind. This wasn't about title or position. It was fundamentally what is best for the company. Um, and I agreed that he should come in. Um, and in many ways, that was probably the best decision I ever made at Netflix because those next two years were in many ways the renaissance at Netflix. Um, and so many important, valuable things happened with the two of us running things together. And certainly, even after, after I left Netflix many years later and saw what Reed has been able to do since then, I mean, wow, what an amazing outcome he's created. So you talk about some of those knew the shifts that you had uh, when Reed came on. So some of them, I think, were you had this three-pronged new wave to Netflix, basically. The renting multiple DVDs at a time, creating the queue of movie choices for renters, and then a subscription model. Can you go over the process of thinking of those three things simultaneously and then trying out those three things simultaneously? Yeah, I knew you'd want to rub that one in. Um, so each of those ideas uh, arose organically and independently. I mean, and the idea behind the no due dates, no late fees really originated. Maybe I'll take some credit for that one because, you know, in our warehouse, at that point, we were pretty big. We probably had 100,000 movies sitting in the warehouse. And I remember being in the warehouse, looking around and saying, it's kind of a shame that they're all sitting here, not being used. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could somehow figure out a way to store them at the customers' houses. Just let them keep them. And when they're done with them, they mail them back, we mail them another. And then we had a different idea 
that for the a la carte rental we were doing, that wouldn't it be kind of neat to have an automa automatic a la carte, where if you mail one back, we have a list of what you want to see, and boom, the next one goes out to overcome this problem of no one wanting to come back and pick again. And there had always been this idea of about some kind of subscription, because we had had like, you know, punch cards of discounted pricing for 10, and we're going, maybe we do a monthly. And it was Reed who, in his impatience, said, Let's, we, we don't have time to test these three independently. Let's test them all at once. And my background's in direct marketing. My first 15, 20 years in business was as a direct marketing guy. And that is anathema. You never test multiple big stroke ideas simultaneously because what happens if one of them is a big win, one's a big loss, and one's neutral, the whole thing's a wash and you have no idea. Reed goes, ah, screw it. Test them all at once. And we built this one program, the no due dates, no late fees, with a queue and subscription. And to Reed's credit, it worked. And it really worked. It took off. And then in that focus mechanism we talked about, we almost immediately dropped all the a la carte and put everything we had into this new no due dates, no late fees. And that became Netflix. And then the final piece was the algorithm that picked recommendations for the next movie to watch, which still exists today. Absolutely. In fact, that goes even further back in a way because, you know, when I said that, um, when I pitched the idea to our first investors and told my wife and tried to convince people to join us and they all said, that will never work, about half of the, of the people who said that were thinking about Blockbuster. But the other half were saying it's going to be a streaming world. It's a digital medium. You know, it's just a matter of time before everyone's downloading it or streaming it. And Reed and I knew they were right. And what we thought they were wrong about was the timing. So we recognized the strategic challenge here was how do you build a business which is relevant now, but all the brand equity you build now is still relevant in the future. If we had said we're going to be all about the best shipper of plastic, we'd be toast when everyone began to stream. But if we had come out and said we're about streaming, we would have no customers. And so the smart thing, probably the second smart decision we made, after Reed being the first one, is um, to position the company as being delivery agnostic. And so we decided the core value was helping you find entertainment you love. Because then it didn't make a difference. If you wanted to get it on a DVD, great. We help you find a great movie. If you want to stream it, great. If eventually you, I don't know, beam it into your uh, holographic projector thing or into your fillings, whatever it is, it'll still be about finding movies um, you love. Uh, and we had to make that real. And on day one, making it real was having every single DVD available, tracking down that last obscure marching band video or something like that. Um, but then it became deep content. And then it became Mitch Lowe doing these intelligent collections and matching. And then it was building a site which could dynamically show you new movies so you weren't repeating. And then it was building these dynamic algorithm to predict with some reasonable degree of accuracy what you might like so we could show you movies you were more likely to enjoy. So you mentioned Blockbuster. All these things are happening. And then in September of 2000, you and Reed offered Netflix to Blockbuster for $50 million and they reject it. And then you say at a certain point in the book, now Netflix is worth $150 billion and Blockbuster is gone. This is my toughest question, I think. What can we learn from this? 
first thing to learn is you don't want to be blockbuster in this story. <laughs> Much better to be Netflix. But, um, you know, listen, I feel badly. Um, you know, blockbuster had 60,000 employees, and you can't take delight in that. Um, and if I take delight in anything, it's the fact that streaming has created so many opportunities for people. I mean, certainly in the creative industry and certainly in distribution, certainly all these companies now going into streaming and even for the consumer. So you have to put this in perspective. But what you'll learn from this is that Blockbuster made several fundamental mistakes. Um, and the first one was not taking this new thing seriously. They absolutely saw it coming. They saw it coming. And they had the opportunity to go all in. And of course they didn't. They took their best programmers and left their best programmers on the part of their business that was generating 99% of the revenue. They experimented with direct delivery and their franchisees freaked out and they couldn't risk offending their franchisees. So all these things where they were both unwilling and unable um, to address the future left it until it was way, way, way too late. And the lesson here is that if you aren't willing to disrupt yourself, you're just leaving it wide open for someone to disrupt your business for you. We could continue this conversation, I think, for much longer. But for that whole story, we're going to make them uh, read the book. But as we finish up, Mark, can you talk about your decision to leave Netflix in 2002 shortly after you guided it through its IPO? Yeah, sure. Um, I've always believed that what success means is not how much money you make or what your title is or how much power or any, or any of those things. It's really, do you get the ability to do the things you love doing? And do you get the ability to do the things that you're good at? And I was pretty fortunate that I learned early on that what I'm good at and what I really love is early stage stuff. I love it when there's no path. I love it when almost everything you try is going to be wrong. It's the ultimate puzzle for me. And I could do that crossword puzzle for the rest of my life. Um, and with Netflix, we in some ways completed the puzzle. And we had an IPO. And we had resources. We were able to hire these unbelievably competent people. And so even though I loved the company, I mean, this was my baby. And I loved fighting to right its wrongs and vanquish its enemies. But the things I was doing every day weren't the things that I was particularly good at. And they certainly weren't the things that I enjoyed most. And I realized it was probably time for me to get back to what I love doing, which is working on early stage problems. And, you know, I'm the luckiest guy in the world because I get to do that now. I do get to come in to work, not every day, which is also a great thing. But I get to sit around the table with other entrepreneurs and help them solve their really hard problems. Um, and then I get to go home at night. So um, it, it's, it was a, it's a great outcome. And Reed, Reed loves the chess game he's playing. For him, that's what makes him whole. And, and that's what it's all about. If you had to offer one or two of your best bits of advice for a new entrepreneur, what would that be? Most people have ideas. We all have great ideas. But most people leave them in their head for too long because they're imagining the obstacles or they're trying in vain to see around the corner and see where their idea leads. And they never start. 
And if you don't start, nothing happens, nothing. And that if you wait until you can see around the corner, it's too late. That what you have to do is take that first step and then see how the world looks from there. And then take the next step and see how the world looks from there. And it's such simple advice. And you know, I wrote this book partly to tell this untold story of Netflix, but the real reason is because I firmly believe that all of these tips and all these tricks and all these secrets that I've learned in 40 years as an entrepreneur are the exact same things that anybody can use who has an idea. It doesn't even need to be a business idea. You don't need to be an entrepreneur. You could be in a large company and you see a problem your customers have it or that your department is having. Or you could be a young person who's just trying to figure out how do I get a how do I get that apartment? And those ideas have to be acted on. And I'm trying to show that sometimes if you take the craziest idea and are willing to make that first step, that sometimes it actually works. Save my final question for movies. Uh, I've read your answer to this in the book, but I'll, I'll ask you here. What is your favorite movie, your favorite television show, and then your favorite Netflix produced show or movie? Three-pronged uh, <laughs> attack here. So, uh, okay, I'll go in reverse order. So, listen, I'm, I'm, it's not like I only watch Netflix. That would be uh, <laughs> the ultimate painful thing to do because there's so much great television. And... Um, and I, you know, I not only invented binge watching, I, I, I consume it like a fiend. Um, and so we're watching Secession right now, my wife and I. Um, and that's like four seasons or something like that. So we've, we're only on season two, so we've got a way to go. So there you go. There's my pitch for, I think that's HBO, which is, but awesome stuff. Uh, favorite Netflix produced show is the other one that we just finished was Narcos, which was so notable because so much of it's in Spanish. And to think that something could be compelling in a different language with a cast, which is so international, speaks volumes about the ability of us all to be kind of a global community united through these great stories. Um, now the movie one, I knew you, you're, you're really trying to get me here. So you know, normally what I would tell you is, oh, it's Pulp Fiction. I, I won't call you out if you uh, want to leave it. No, 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 I'll be vulnerable with you since you have that, that manner that draws you in. The, the, the real movie, I can't believe I'm going to say it. Okay. It's uh, Doc Hollywood, since I do reveal it in the book too, um, which is certainly a movie most people haven't heard of. But it's my favorite movie, not because of its cinematography or its screenwriting. It simply speaks to me. Um, it makes me emotionally resonate. And maybe because it's about, it's a fish out of water story. And it's about a kinder, simpler time and about people's yearning to get off the fast track and connect with people. But ultimately, that's what a company like Netflix does, is it, it deals in stories. And we are hardwired to respond to stories, and stories move us. And uh, it's, you know, I, it's the antithesis of a company which is making cigarettes. I mean, I think what Netflix is doing and what all the streaming companies are doing, what all the entertainment companies are doing is connecting us all with stories that make us feel and make us think. And I think that's a great legacy to leave the world. The book is That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. Mark, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's been a pleasure to be with you, Antonio. Thank you. And a thank you to our listeners. Please subscribe to our podcast, rate it, comment on it. And if you have finance questions related to entrepreneurship, small businesses, or startups that you'd like answered on future shows, please email wealthofknowledge at usnews.com. 
We'll review your emails, and we'll try to answer a few on the next episode. Finally, for more information on finance, investing, and business, check out money.usnews.com. Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm Antonio Barbera. See you next week. Meet Miguel. He has investments through principal. Hi there. Miguel finally had the opportunity to buy his dream car in retirement. But life changed when his 16-year-old granddaughter moved in. We're happy to have her. With the help of his advisor, Miguel reworked his financial plan, and now that dream car looks a little different. We just want it to be safe for her to drive. We can help you plan for that. Principal. Investments. Retirement. Insurance. Start today at Principal.com. Principal Life and Principal Life Insurance Company is Principal Global Investors, Principal Securities, Inc. Member SIPC, member companies of Principal Des Moines, Iowa.